You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In 1900, the Catholic Church in the United States was still officially a missionary territory, and certainly no one would have looked to the United States for any kind of intellectual, theological leadership in the, in the church. Same would, of course, been true of the country in general. The country was barely 100 years old. Much of it was frontier. It lacked the great, rich tradition of intellectual and cultural life in Europe. And yet, the uh, United States would play a somewhat secondary, but at the same time interesting, role in the whole modernist crisis. In 1899, Leo XIII had issued a letter of warning to the American bishops, which was entitled Testem Benevolentiae, the witness of goodwill in which he praised the church in the United States for many of its qualities. It was very dynamic, it was growing rapidly, the people were very generous and so forth, but he thought he had detected certain tendencies in American Catholicism which were potentially dangerous. Exalting, for example, he said, the active over the contemplative life, meaning the idea that going out making converts, establishing parishes, establishing schools, engaging in feverish activity was what was really important and perhaps neglecting the idea of prayer, of meditation, of penance, everything that was associated with traditional monastic life, for example. Could you have a vibrant Catholicism in which the contemplative element was slighted? Did not that become mere activism? That was one thing. Another thing was, as the Pope noted, a tendency to exalt the American political system as being superior to all others and as being the one political system that should be followed everywhere. And in particular, he had in mind there the constitutional principle of the separation of church and state. He didn't say that that principle was invalid, he didn't say that it was wrong, but he said it could not be taken as the perfect system which was to be followed everywhere. The letter of warning which Leo issued was prompted primarily, it seems, by a book which had been published a couple of years before, first in America, then in a French translation which is how the Vatican saw it, The Life of Father Hecker, it was called, by a priest named Walter Elliott. Father Hecker was an American, born as a Protestant, who had had some rather interesting experiences. He had spent some time in New England on one of those sort of experimental communal farms that high-minded individuals of that period were always trying some way of overcoming individualism and the spirit of competitiveness by a spirit of cooperation. Hecker had become disillusioned both with Protestantism 
and with this whole communal idea. He entered the Catholic Church. He first became a redemptorist priest, then felt that the old world ways of the redemptorists were an impediment to uh, apostolic work in the United States, and so eventually got permission to found his own religious community, the Congregation of St. Paul, ordinarily called the Paulists. Hecker's Paulists managed within a generation or so to attract something of an elite. A really disproportionate number of the early Paulists were converts, as was Hecker himself, and a disproportionate number came from rather prominent families, and a disproportionate number were graduates of elite universities like Harvard. And so it looked as though the Paulist experiment was going to be successful, perhaps, in bridging the gulf between Catholicism and American culture. Hecker believed that one of the obstacles to the growth of the church in America, or the acceptance of the church in America, was its foreign look. Well, to begin with, of course, most American Catholics of that time were foreigners. They were immigrants. So that anti-Catholicism was sometimes called nativism, which meant standing up for those born in America as against the immigrants. But there were other things about it as well. He thought that much of the appearance of the church, the style of architecture, the vestments that priests wore, the way nuns dressed, had a kind of a foreign European medieval look about it. The mass was in Latin. Catholic thinkers used an unfamiliar terminology, theological and philosophical terms, which Americans didn't really understand, and so forth. Now, Hecker was not very clear on how far he thought the church ought to go in adapting to American culture, but he was clear on the fact that it should do so. For example, he wasn't campaigning that the liturgy should be celebrated in English, or that, for example, traditional religious garb should be discarded, but at the same time probably thought that something like that would be a good thing. More important than that, I think, he was attempting to restate Catholic belief in terms which he thought would be more immediately accessible to Americans, which meant, among other things, not using a lot of technical terminology that would come from Thomas Aquinas, trying to identify certain things in American culture which he thought resonated with Catholicism. For example, he thought that Americans were by nature optimistic. And classical Protestantism, like Calvinism, was very pessimistic, human depravity. And he said, well, you see, by contrast, the Catholic Church also is an optimistic religion. And so he was attempting to get Americans to see that. The biography of Hecker, especially the French edition of it, tended to somewhat exaggerate these tendencies. And this seems to have been what alarmed the Vatican and led to the warning that was issued by Leo XIII in 1899. Now, it should be noted that where Americanism itself is concerned, and Leo uses that term, there are no matters of doctrine. Nobody's questioning any of the teachings of the church. And in fact, it's somewhat difficult to get a grasp on what the issues really are. 
because it tends to be a matter of emphasis or it tends to be a matter of certain types of rhetoric or certain types of words. And in some respects, the whole thing begins to evaporate as you try to get a grip on it. Whom was Leo XIII referring to? Well, Hecker was dead by this time, and uh, it was understood that the letter was a kind of rebuke, actually, to certain prominent members of the hierarchy. The most notable was Archbishop John Ireland of St. Paul, Minnesota. There was Bishop John Lancaster Spaulding of Peoria, Illinois. There was Bishop John Keene, who at that time was the rector of the North American College in Rome. They were, for the most part, you might say, protected by Cardinal James Gibbons of Baltimore, the only American cardinal, who wasn't perhaps fully in line with them on everything, but at the same time tended to support them. And Ireland and Keene, in particular, were enthusiastic Americanists. They were very much in favor of American culture. They thought America was the greatest nation in the world. They thought Americans had discovered things which others didn't know about. They thought that Europe was a decadent, dying society. The future belonged to America, and they were kind of enthusiastic boosters. The Catholic University of America had been founded in 1888 with these particular bishops as among the leading figures who established it. And uh, from the beginning, the Catholic University of America harbored some of the more liberal tendencies in theology and philosophy of that era. Now, these again are matters of degree, but there was a cautious interest, for example, in the new biblical criticism. There was a cautious interest in the doctrine of evolution. And despite the insistence of Leo XIII in 1880, that Thomas Aquinas was to be considered the preeminent Catholic philosopher and theologian, those who founded the Catholic University were somewhat slow to implement that because they weren't at all sure that Aquinas was fully relevant to the American experience. The Americanist controversy has often been dismissed as a storm in a teacup. Americanism has been called the phantom heresy. It clearly was not a heresy. On the other hand, I think that Leo XIII did have his finger on something. There was some reality there which he had noticed. And one of the things that one sees, particularly about Archbishop Ireland and Bishop Spalding, is their uncritical boosterism, that the way in which they sort of blinded themselves to almost any of the defects of American culture and seemed almost to judge the church entirely according to American culture without very much critical thinking. Ireland in particular tended to be an enthusiast, probably liked to think of himself as an intellectual, but he was not a very careful thinker. Now, on the other hand, modernism itself does play some role in the United States, albeit in an only loose connection to Americanism. There was a point around the turn of the century when Archbishop Ireland actually tried to recruit Alfred Wazee to the faculty of his seminary in St. Paul. Wazee turned him down. It seems likely that Ireland had no clear understanding of what Wazee was up to, but simply knew 
that he was considered to be on the cutting edge of modern theology, and Ireland wanted someone in his seminary who was on the cutting edge. A few years later, Ireland and Spalding are in Paris, and they meet Loisie, and Loisie says afterwards, what a disappointment. I heard so much about these liberal American bishops. They don't understand anything that's going on. All they want to talk about is the separation of church and state. So it seems quite likely that the American bishops who were called Americanists had at best the most superficial knowledge of modernism and certainly made no real effort to promote it. And after it was condemned in 1907, it pretty well died in America as well. But as I say, there were some manifestations of it only indirectly connected to Americanism. One member of the Paulist order at the turn of the century was a man by the name of William Sullivan of Irish-American background. He was not a convert, as so many of the other early Paulists were. And for reasons that are not entirely clear, Sullivan practically from the time of his ordination in the 1890s was a discontented man suffering a considerable degree of spiritual anxiety. Biblical criticism, again, seems to have been the thing that troubled him above all. And like the other modernists, he believed on the one hand that the new biblical criticism was very damaging to Christianity, but on the other hand seemed to believe also that the new biblical criticism was essentially itself beyond criticism and was to be taken as true because the biblical scholars claimed to be scientific. Sullivan, like some of the European modernists, wanted to somehow work around that. And the way he chose to work around it might be seen as a typically American way, and that is it was the moral power of the gospel, the moral power of the teachings of Jesus. I said about some of the Europeans, Blondel, Le Barthonier, that they did not reduce the gospel simply down to the Sermon on the Mount. But Sullivan, to a considerable extent, did. Sullivan was prepared to say that maybe most of the stories about miracles in the gospels are not true, didn't consider it to be crucial whether or not one believed that Jesus rose from the dead, although as a matter of fact he did believe it. But he thought that the shining moral teachings of Jesus were what stood out. Things like the Sermon on the Mount were of perennial power and inspiration, and this is where the message of the gospel was to be found. In this, he was really no different than the liberal Protestants of his day. He was also an Americanist in that he exalted the American experience of freedom, and he said that historically the Catholic Church has been the enemy of freedom, and the Catholic Church now needs to learn from the United States the crucial importance of freedom, including freedom of speculation, allowing people to freely express their theological beliefs without incurring any kind of penalty as a result. He becomes very anti-papal, especially when Pius X condemns modernism, and Sullivan writes an open letter to Pius X, which is a rather an intemperate attack on the Pope, 
and which pretty well, of course, marked the end of his career as a priest. He publishes a novel called The Priest, which is a very interesting document in terms of the way in which he viewed things. It's a somewhat complicated plot that I won't go into in much detail, except that it involves a Catholic priest in Boston, which is where he was from, Sullivan, who encounters a Unitarian minister and becomes a good friend of his. Now, Unitarianism is a movement in religion that goes back to the 16th century, but as we know it in this country, it really develops in New England in the early 19th century. And uh, Unitarianism, as the name indicates, believes that there is only one person in God, that the being to whom Jesus continually refers to as my Father is God. And Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus is someone who embodies the Father in a certain respect, but he is not himself God. Unitarians rejecting the doctrine of the Trinity. And Unitarianism had developed particularly along the lines I was just talking about, emphasizing the moral teachings of Jesus. The purpose of Christianity is moral uplift. Doctrine interferes, it gets in the way, it should be abandoned. The more doctrine you have, the more encumbered you are. We don't need to worry about the historicity of the Gospels because again, the shining words of Jesus come and speak to us across the centuries. So here we have in this novel, the priest, the Catholic priest, who essentially becomes a Unitarian intellectually under the influence of this Unitarian minister and in the end abandons his priesthood. And this is precisely what happened to Sullivan himself. He leaves the priesthood and becomes a Unitarian minister. He lives on until 1935 and his later history is somewhat interesting because if he found the Catholic Church to be oppressive and dogmatic, he found the Unitarian Church to be rather sterile. He thought that Unitarianism had reduced itself down to exhorting people to good behavior and sobriety and hard work and due consideration for the needy, but that it lacked all spiritual power, it lacked all spiritual depth. And he thought that Unitarianism needed a kind of a Catholic element in it. Spirituality, once again, greater understanding that some of the doctrines of the church which might be rejected nonetheless contain some profound insight. He wanted to have retreats, for example, given within the Unitarian church. He wanted to encourage people in a personal, even somewhat mystical relationship with God. So he was viewed by his fellow Unitarian clergy as a fish out of water too. And so he kind of ends up with a happy home nowhere. In 1909, the year in which Sullivan left the Paulists, four other Paulist priests left, who themselves had been influenced by modernism. Not nearly as much is known about them. Here and there from time to time, stories pop up of other priests who left the priesthood at around that time because of modernism. But again, none of these stories has ever been written in any significant detail. There is one other aspect, however, or two other aspects of American modernism which are known in some detail. 
One of them involves the seminary of the Archdiocese of New York, St. Joseph's at Yonkers, usually called Dunwoody. And in recent times, the Dunwoody Seminary has been considered to be one of the most orthodox in the United States. But interestingly enough, in the first decade of the 20th century, it was considered the most liberal. The faculty of the Dunwoody Seminary had been priests of the Sulpician Order. The Sulpicians were an order that had been founded in France in the 17th century, primarily to train and educate priests. They had come to America in the 18th century. They were found in a number of places. There had been a number of Sulpician bishops in the United States. And uh, as I say, their primary work was seminary education, and they were staffing the New York Seminary. And the little group of them who were there were quite interested in modernism, quite interested in what was going on on the continent, quite interested in the new biblical criticism. They founded a magazine called the New York Review in which they were attempting to make available to Americans what they saw as avant-garde European theology. Now, they were a little bit careful about it. They would not have published the most radical statements of someone like Wazee, but they did publish some things by Wazee, and they published articles about the modernists, expounding their ideas. And as I say in particular, they showed an interest in the new biblical criticism. Well, the general of the Sulpicians, who was a Frenchman, rebuked them for this, and they left the Sulpician order, and they joined the Archdiocese of New York as diocesan priests. And they were welcomed by the Archbishop of New York, John Farley, who would shortly thereafter become a cardinal. Farley is not considered to be himself much of an intellectual, or by conviction a liberal, but it's questionable to what extent he understood what was going on, but he did seemingly want to be fairly tolerant, and so he welcomed the Sulpicians into his diocese. They continued to teach at the seminary. The most important figure was a priest by the name of Francis Gigo, who was probably the leading American biblical scholar at that time, and in particular was interested in the question of Jesus' self-knowledge, which is a somewhat perplexing one in theology. If Jesus is both God and man, then, for example, at the moment of his birth, when he is an infant, does Jesus already have full, absolute, and infinite consciousness of everything, because after all, he's God? Well, if so, then isn't it an illusion to say that he's a baby? Therefore, he's not really human. On the other hand, if you say, that's true, when he's born, he's like any other infant in terms of what he knows, then how can you exactly say he's God? So this is, of course, one of those ultimate mysteries of the Incarnation which cannot be solved. This is the kind of question that Jigo and some others were dealing with. Or, to what extent did Jesus know that he was the Messiah? Or is this an awareness that came upon him gradually? These are, as I say, the questions that are involved. One of the members of the faculty at Dunwoody was a priest named Francis Patrick Duffy, and his interest was in evolution, once again, and he thought that evolution was a fact and that the church should adopt to it, and he thought that this, of course, had implications for biblical 
studies because of what does one do with the story of creation in Genesis. I mentioned Duffy because he's much better known in another context. He's got a statue in New York City, in Manhattan, I believe it's in Herald Square, and he's known as Fighting Father Duffy because later on he became an army chaplain in World War I and he was highly decorated for his bravery and his involvement in the modernist movement earlier was completely forgotten. When Cardinal Farley finally received certain warnings from Rome, he closed down the New York Review and uh, he replaced the rector of the seminary with someone else. And essentially this episode then in the history of modernism evaporated rather quickly. It was mild modernism compared with some of the things that were going on elsewhere. One other episode is a priest by the name of John Slattery, American-born New Yorker who joined an English religious order called the Mill Hill Fathers and he was their superior in the United States. He became particularly interested in ministering to black people and especially in the south or the border states. He found that the, the circumstances of the Mill Hill Fathers were such that they didn't lend themselves readily to that mission and so he gets permission to leave the Mill Hill Fathers, found his own religious order, which he calls the Josephites, the Society of St. Joseph. And they, of course, still exist to the present time. Slattery is their first general, superior. Slattery, too, is influenced by the twin issues of biblical criticism and evolution and these apparently are a source of considerable anxiety to Slattery. He begins to think more and more that the church is dishonest, the church is tyrannical, the church is attempting to suppress the search for truth, and Slattery then himself leaves the priesthood and basically leaves the church, and his later history is somewhat obscure. There was also a professor of biblical studies at the Catholic University, a Dutchman by the name of Henry Pohls, who was forced to resign in the first decade of the 20th century because of his views about the Bible. And once again, the phenomenon of modernism in the United States was much milder than it was in Europe. Most of what the modernists in America thought and said was a derivation from Europe. The American modernists probably did not understand the full impact of what the modernists were doing in Europe. The modernists in Europe themselves were very few in number and somewhat marginal to the life of the church, and that was even more so in the United States. Modernism in the United States does take on a slightly different coloring, as I said, the coloring of Americanism in which you have the American modernists continually invoking the experience of American freedom and taking civil freedom, that is to say as a citizen you have the right to say whatever you want and applying it to the church, that someone in the church should have a right to say whatever they want and that there should be no ecclesiastical censures of any kind and those two things kind of merge into one another. William Sullivan, for example, and John Slattery kind of end up saying, well, it's true that, that Catholicism is utterly unsuited to American uh, culture. Now, the principal condemnation of modernism 
occurs, as I've said several times, in 1907, and we'll be looking at that in some detail. But we might get a little bit ahead of the story here by talking about the aftermath of the condemnation. There's a standard view of modernism by liberal historians which view its condemnation as a terrible tragedy. These people say that here was original thinking. Here were some of the brightest Catholic intellectuals of modern times struggling to bring the church into modern times, to reconcile the church with modern culture, modern intellectual life, the best of modern thought. And the authorities come down on them with a heavy hand, suppress it. Some of them are forced to leave the church or they're excommunicated. Catholic intellectual life is destroyed for the next 60 years until the time of the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s. It's often been said that this is a great tragedy because, among other things, the church could have flourished enormously, perhaps especially in the United States, if it had demonstrated around 1900 its willingness and its ability to accommodate itself in certain ways to modern culture. But those allegations, it seems to me, are historically quite clearly untrue. In the first place, certainly in America, less so in Europe, the condemnation of modernism in 1907 coincides with the beginnings of very rapid and spectacular growth on the part of American Catholicism, which will continue all the way down into the 1960s. Some of it, of course, is due to immigration. But immigration begins to gradually trail off after 1907, almost comes to a halt in the 1920s. And still the Catholic Church continues to grow. Maybe because Catholics tended to have large families, but there are also a significant number of converts. And from any visible point of view, the Catholic Church in America was flourishing. The tremendous growth of the parish system, the tremendous proliferation of schools, everything from kindergarten up to graduate schools and medical schools, the proliferation of charitable institutions of all kinds, hospitals, orphanages, and so forth. The American Catholics, with an enormous loyalty and fidelity to the church, so that in 1960, Catholic rate of Sunday mass attendance in the U.S. was around 75 or 80 percent, which was one of the highest in the world. Most remarkable because, of course, it was entirely voluntary. No one was required by law to go to church. Everyone who knew anything about it would say that American Catholics tended to be very devout. They took their religion very seriously. Not only did they go to Mass on Sunday, but they turned up in huge numbers for devotions and pious activities of one kind or another. They were very generous in giving money to the church, which allowed these numerous institutions to flourish. There were those who were critical of this, 
and dismissed it as brick-and-mortar Catholicism, being obsessed with numbers. They would say, you can't just look at the statistics, you have to look at the quality of it, arguing that it was shallow, arguing that it was lacking in depth, and so forth. But others pointed out that there were signs also, as American Catholicism matured, of precisely that depth that some of the critics said were lacking. If Leo XIII in 1899 had thought that there was a little bit disparaging of the contemplative life in the United States, after World War II, the contemplative life begins to flourish, monastic life begins to flourish as never before. The most famous representative of it being the Trappist monk Thomas Merton, whose writings about monastic life are devoured by people. And floods of young men begin entering monasteries and young women entering convents. And the mystical life being taken much more seriously than ever before, the contemplative life in general. So that one can argue that by the 1950s, American Catholicism had reached a state of maturity and flourishing that it had never enjoyed before. Therefore, to say that the condemnation of Americanism and modernism around the turn of the century had a devastating effect on the life of the church is clearly untrue. It may have been discouraging and traumatic for certain intellectuals. It scarcely touched the body of the church as a whole, and the claims of people like Hecker and Sullivan and others that we must make drastic adjustments to American life if we want the church to flourish, proved to be untrue. Catholics were tremendously drawn to the church in the form in which it presented itself to them. And if that form was in many ways European or medieval or whatever, they nonetheless did not find that to be an obstacle. The story in Europe is somewhat different. If we take England, where Terrell and von Hugel lived, the story is somewhat like that of the United States. That is, the small English community, English Catholic community, did continue to grow. Catholics became increasingly respected and respectable in English life. Catholic institutions flourished, and there was considerable sign of what we might call religious maturity, as reflected, for example, in monastic life. So that there's no way of arguing that the condemnation of modernism had a blighting effect upon English Catholic life. Well, what about France, which was, of course, the home of modernism? There is no question that the church was in the process of beginning a decline in the early 20th century, and that that decline continued and that it does continue all the way up to the present time, and that there have been those who have wondered whether in fact it is meaningful to speak of France as a Catholic culture or Catholic country at all. As early as right after World War II, 1948, there was an Archbishop of Paris who issued a letter with the rather inflammatory title, Is France Pagan? and made a good argument that in fact it was in the sense that people moving away from the practice of their faith. 
the trend continues to the present time. And bad as it may have been in 1948, it's worse today. I think it's totally unwarranted, however, to think that the condemnation of modernism was somehow responsible for this, or that had the church embraced modernism instead of condemning it, it would have reversed the trend. And I think that if we look at the experience of the United States and of England and contrast it with France, we get a clue to this. Obviously, if the condemnation of modernism was going to have such a devastating effect on the life of the church, it would have had such an effect in England and America as well. The fact that it didn't indicates that there must be other reasons for uh, the decline of the church in France. Now, I don't want to get into an involved analysis of what those reasons might be. Some of them we have touched upon in an earlier lecture. There is the polarization in French life coming down from the revolution between the partisans of the revolution who tend to be secular and anti-clerical and skeptical and hostile to religion and the partisans of the church, many of whom, not all, completely rejected modern society and were, in fact, monarchists of one kind or another. That's a distinctive feature of French life, which tends to poison the religious atmosphere in France in a way that it is not poisoned in other places. As I've noted in talking about Loisie in particular, he was very insensitive, if not worse in failing to take account of the environment in which all of this was occurring. That in the France of 1900 or 1905, it was impossible to discuss these theological issues as it were in a vacuum, calmly, as though they were merely academic questions. The leadership of the church in France was acutely aware of the fact that they had powerful enemies, including the government and that these enemies were driven by a deep skepticism going back to the 18th century enlightenment, regarded religion as false, regarded religion also as pernicious. Religion is something whose influence was to be exterminated from public life. And it was not a very opportune time for people like Loisie to come along and demand a radical restatement of Catholic doctrine in ways which seem to say that the enemies of the church have been right all along and that those things which we've been teaching have been largely false and Voltaire was right in the 18th century. One either sees in this a considerable insensitivity on Loisie's part or what I think is equally probable that he himself wanted to join in that task of essentially dismantling the church. I mentioned Unitarianism in connection with William Sullivan. Somebody made the quip about Unitarianism. Well, there are a number of quips about it. One is the Unitarians are people who believe in at most one God. And another quip is that it's not a quip, it's more or less a statement. Unitarianism is a feather bed for falling Christians meaning that if you are in the process of losing your faith, instead of coming down hard and hitting the ground, the ground of 
skepticism and doubt, you can let yourself down easily by adopting a creed which is fairly vague, quite liberal, and allows you pretty much to believe as much or as little as you care to, and to still call yourself a Christian. The point about its being a feather bed is that it tends to be a transitional thing. Unitarianism can be seen maybe as one of the first manifestations of modern liberal Protestantism, as we have used that term here before, arguing that it begins with Friedrich Schleiermacher in the early 19th century. Liberal Protestantism, or for that matter, liberal Catholicism, or what is called Reformed Judaism, sees that there are all these skeptics and non-believers out there. And says, well, they doubt this or that of our teachings and doctrines. And maybe they have a point. Maybe some of these teachings and doctrines are, in fact, incredible. Maybe they are false. Maybe they were credible at some earlier time in history, but they are no longer credible now. Therefore, if we show the skeptics, if we show them that we accept their criticisms, that we see their point, and that we are willing to make adjustments, we are willing to make adaptations, then they will treat us with a new respect and they will regard our faith as credible. And so liberal Protestantism has a history of what one might call the progressive abandonment of various fortresses. First you abandon the outer wall, which might be something like the story of creation as it's found in Genesis. Then you abandon the next wall, which might be most of the miracles and say, well, most of the miracles which are reported in the New Testament probably didn't occur, or at least didn't occur the way they're presented. For example, did Jesus really multiply loaves and fishes, or as liberals like to say, did he touch people's hearts so they all took out the food which they had hidden under their cloaks and they shared it? Or you might ultimately abandon even the doctrine of the resurrection, or you might at least revise it in such a way as to say, well, I don't think that Jesus came bodily out of the tomb. I don't think the stone actually rolled away. I don't think there was actually an angel there. I'm not sure the tomb was really empty on Easter morning, but Jesus somehow other continued to live in the minds and hearts of his followers in a very powerful and vivid way. And that is what we mean by the resurrection or one goes the route of moralism, as we saw in the case of William Sullivan, of saying that the true message of the gospel is the moral teachings of Jesus, nothing else really matters. Now, when the skeptic, the cultured despiser of Christianity, as Schleiermacher referred to them, is presented with this, the cultured despiser may nod approvingly and say, good, I'm glad to hear that you people are kind of finally wising up. You're beginning to understand how many of your teachings were incredible and tenable, and you're beginning to get rid of that which is untenable. But does this make the skeptic any more inclined to become a Christian? 
And I think that historically and empirically the answer is quite obviously no. And why not? It's easy enough to understand. When the skeptic sees the liberal Christian abandoning one fortress after another, the skeptic draws the conclusion, well, we've been right all along. We skeptics have been right all along. Belatedly, they're now admitting it. And it will seem to the skeptic that the only problem is they still haven't gone quite far enough. Why are they still hung up on the figure of Jesus, who, as far as we're concerned, is no better than Buddha or Confucius or any number of others? Why do they continue to believe in God? Why do they continue to affirm that when we don't believe that there's any fundamental basis for holding it? So rather than making Christianity more credible to the skeptic, liberalism makes it less credible to the skeptic. And the modern history of liberal Christianity demonstrates this. Some of the Catholic modernists around 1900 were consciously or half-consciously entering into the same territory that liberal Protestants had pioneered. Others were doing it without perhaps understanding that they were doing it. And liberal Protestantism probably looked to them as though it was the wave of the future. But by 1920, liberal Protestantism had already passed its zenith. It was beginning to be attacked even by some Protestants themselves. The most influential Protestant theologian of the 20th century was probably Karl Barth, who was beginning to write against liberal Protestantism as early as 1919. In modern times, within the last three, four decades, liberal Protestantism seems to be quite clearly dying on its feet. If you notice rates of church attendance and things of that kind, the liberal churches, some of them have lost as many as one-third of their members, and the process seems to continue. The explanation for that, I think, again, is quite simple. It's the one that I've already given. What liberal Protestantism, or liberal religion, let's say, is particularly good at is persuading people that they don't need a church. If most of the teachings of historical Christianity are not true, if many of the practices of historical Christianity are very questionable, what do you really need to have a church for at all? You might, as in a Unitarian church, go on Sunday morning to hear a lecture on some contemporary issue, but after all, you can find those better in a lot of other places if you're interested in the environment join an environmental group. If you're interested in peace, join an anti-war group. The church has become essentially superfluous. So I believe that we could speculate plausibly that had the Catholic Church embraced modernism around 1900, it would have embarked upon a similar process of weakening itself over decades rather than the reverse that the modernists of the early 20th century who thought they had come up with a sort of a blueprint for the revitalization of the church, making the church more relevant, getting people to take it more seriously, unknowingly had come up with something exactly the opposite. And by condemning modernism, the church therefore, in a way, was protecting itself probably even better than the Pope himself understood at the time. The modernists, it seems to me, are what we might call enthusiasts. And what I mean by that is people who have fallen in love with certain ideas 
and those ideas grip them and inspire them and inflame them and it doesn't allow them to exercise much in the way of critical judgment. Now this may seem to be, say, to be a rather odd thing to say because they kept accusing the hierarchy of not allowing critical judgment and they kept claiming that they precisely were exercising critical judgment and were being punished for it. But while they would allow themselves to be very skeptical and critical of traditional creeds and other traditional doctrinal statements, they did not turn the same spirit of criticism for the most part on themselves, which is pretty characteristic of people, as a matter of fact, in all times of history. Those who see themselves as anti-establishment can see all the flaws of the establishment, but usually can't see any of the flaws in themselves. These people were heading out onto uncharted waters. Biblical criticism was very new to them. The theory of evolution was very new to them. These ideas hit them with a powerful force, shocked them maybe. We have now had more than a century of careful philosophical and theological reflection on this and other aspects of modernity. Whereas these people were, as I say, enthusiasts, rushing in rather uncritically, embracing the theory of evolution uncritically, embracing modern biblical criticism uncritically, being very quick to think that the foundations of traditional Catholic faith had been undermined, being very quick to prescribe radical courses of reform which they thought would solve the problem, being very much in love with their own ideas, being carried away with great passion really in, in some cases for their own ideas. And in a certain sense it seems to me that besides the fact that they rejected some of the teachings of the church, one might also say that they were poor prophets, they did not really understand the future, and second of all, that they were in certain respects also intellectually irresponsible. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.